I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. A little after 2.30 Monday afternoon, a gunman armed with an AR-15-style assault weapon entered a King Supers supermarket in Boulder, Colorado, and opened fire. In the ensuing chaos, 10 people lay dead. Shoppers and shop clerks, a local businessman, a yoga store manager there to pick up her prescription medicine, a police officer who tried to save lives. It was that most depressing, if familiar, of events in modern America, another mass casualty shooting, coming just days after an equally horrific massacre in Atlanta. But will this latest eruption of gun violence move Congress to finally pass legislation that would clamp down on the easy access that Americans still have to weapons of mass destruction? President Biden says he'll try, but the obstacles seem as politically steep as ever. We'll talk to Sam Weaver, the mayor of Boulder, about how his city had actually imposed an assault weapons ban that would have covered one of the firearms this week's shooter used, only to have the law struck down just this month by a Colorado state judge. And then we'll talk to Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, one of the leading House Democratic moderates, who was raised in a gun-owning family, but why she backs tougher gun laws, as well as our efforts to examine the roots of domestic terrorism on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Lizakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by our new co-host, Victoria Bassetti. Uh, Victoria, welcome back. Yeah, I'm Victoria Bassetti from the Brennan Center for Justice and a skullduggery newbie. <laughs> um, so, look, I um, uh, it's so uh, depressing every time one of these uh, events takes place. I was working for NBC in 2012 when uh, Sandy Hook took place. Uh, I was up there in Newtown helping to cover it, and I thought, surely – Congress will have to do something now, just the specter of school kids, 20 school kids, six and seven years old, being gunned down in an elementary school. If that doesn't move Congress, what could possibly do so? And then, you know, it didn't, followed by Charleston, 2015, nine African-Americans killed in a Bible study in a church, uh, Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, 17 people killed in 2018. The Las Vegas shooting, 2017, 60 people killed. Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, 11 people killed. On and on it goes. And yet nothing has emerged in terms of doing something about this epidemic of gun violence. Victoria, you were up on the Hill for many, many years working on these issues. You understand as well as any what the obstacles are. It's politics. That's what it is right now. It's as simple as that. There was a time 
possibly when things could get done. We're down now to one of the simplest, most broadly supported proposals on constraining gun violence right now, universal background checks. And yet it feels like it's going to hit a wall uh, when that piece of legislation goes over to the Senate for the simple reason that uh, the issue, anything having to do with guns, has become almost uh, an article of faith, a, a, a critical part of the culture wars. Uh, there's a hard and fast group of people who just pretty much refuse to consider anything that has the word gun in it right now. The uh, The New York Times called it this doleful ritual that there is one of these horrific massacres followed by just wrenching sadness and then outrage and then calls for reform and uh, new gun laws. Um, and then it goes nowhere every time. Now, I remember, and I think Isikoff, both all of us will remember back in 1994 when uh, the last time Congress passed meaningful uh, gun legislation, 1994, uh, and that barely happened. Um, I remember watching the vote on C-SPAN was for the uh, assault rifles ban. By the way, Joe Biden was leading that fight in the Senate, and it passed by a single vote. And you remember what happened in the November elections yes. in yes. 1994? Well, the Republicans exactly took back going. control of the House, and you know it was widely cited as one of the reasons was the passage of gun control legislation in 94. And you know what's fascinating? I I, I went back to look at some of those stories uh, from 94, and the politics have changed so radically. 60 Democrats in the House, led by Jack Brooks, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, voted against that legislation. And I don't know, 47 or something Republicans voted for it, including Bob Michael, who, who was the right. Republican then minority, the House leader. minority leader. Didn't last long. Right. Um, and now it is completely divided, and not just in Congress, but also across the states where you have. Uh, some, you know, red states who are voting to loosen these laws and increasingly uh, blue states uh, that are actually passing some gun legislation. So to Victoria's point, we're just totally polarized. Yeah. Victoria, weren't you up there on Senate Judiciary in the 90s when all this was coming down? I was. I was actually going to say there was a, I, I worked on a piece of legislation even after the assault weapons ban that actually worked and got the support, if you will, of the of the NRA. So you, you, you got recall, the support uh, of the NRA for something. Yeah. You, you it, again, you, you recall this this doleful ritual. Well, there was a, another horrible shooting that happened in New York in the late 1990s where someone who was a non-immigrant alien, a guy who had just come into the United States on a tourist visa who bought a gun, went to the Empire State Building, and shot a bunch of people. Within a few months afterwards, we managed to cut a deal with the NRA, with Larry Craig, to agree that non-immigrant aliens, in other words, people who are just in the United States on a tourist visa, shouldn't be able to buy a gun. The law passed, and to this day, it's still in place. I'm wondering whether Demo whether progressive Democrats would back that right now because you're targeting non-immigrant, non-undocumented aliens. Yeah, but flash no. forward to 2021, and uh, this you know heinous massacre takes place in Colorado, and Congressman Lauren Boebert 
of Colorado that night uh, puts out um, a a fundraising appeal saying that she's going to vowing to fight against the forces that are trying to take away Americans guns. Yeah. She like almost everyone in their in their state has a core group, a hardcore group of voters who show up for the primaries and who will not stand for any changes to gun laws, period. They just, you just say the word and they draw a line under it and they're done. They won't have anything to do with it. Even if the majority of people support it, that small group that manages to show up at the election, every primary drives the response. And remember, this is happening at a time, this is happening at a time when the NRA is on its heels. I I was just going to say that the difference between then and now is we all, it was always the power of the NRA. Well, the NRA has been neutered. Uh, They've, you know, practically been non-existent in the, in this debate because they've got their own problems and uh, they're being sued and had to, you know, move their headquarters and file for bankruptcy. And it may be that the NRA as a lobbying group really doesn't matter. It's the fact that there are so many millions of gun owners out there who feel passionate about this issue. And the NRA is being replaced by a string of other organizations that are rising up. It's not just the NRA. There are a huge variety of, of other kind of gun rights organizations who are really great at, at organizing people to block all of this legislation. So here, here's the two sort of data points that really leap out at me about this particular incident. One of which is this guy, the, the shooter, Alyssa, was actually convicted of pummeling another kid in school, uh, a violent assault attack. I'm just looking from the police records. Uh, the kid who he pummeled uh, said Ahmed Alyssa came up and punched him in the side of the head. Uh, Alex said he fell to the ground. Ahmed just kept punching him in the face, said that his head and his face hurt. And it was a physical attack, uh, attack that he later said he was, uh, you know, did this because he was being bullied by the other kid. So that's a conviction. It's a misdemeanor conviction. And yet he was able to legally buy the gun because the bar is you have to be convicted of a felony or a crime that could send you to jail for more than a year. So it raises one question in my mind. Do we need to tighten up the background check? Because presumably you know, he would have gone through a background check that did not raise any red flags despite this assault conviction. Yeah, as long as, long as he bought it from a store that's subject to the to, that's required to right. do the background check. Which we don't checks. know I mean, yet. Yeah. Which we don't know yet. And, and he could have he could have gone to a gun show to buy the gun, possibly. And I, I think that, you know, right now. The, the struggle is to even get universal background checks in place. Uh, the idea of being able to expand the categories of, of crimes or incidents that would disqualify you from buying a gun is has been long fought over. And um, efforts, for example, to expand it to uh, people who have domestic violence issues um, have, have been failing for years now. So the idea of expanding to violent misdemeanors is just kind of a pipe dream right now. You might be right, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. What, what well, do you think be- is what do you think is the most likely legislation 
uh, to pass. I mean, none of it is likely, but if anything does, is, it, it, would it be? It's the background checks. It's universal background checks. Extending it's them it. to gun shows, the internet. Yeah, right. exactly. I mean, almost everyone universally agrees. And even, you know, most gun owners agree that people who've got felony convictions, uh, people who are on terrorism you know, watch lists, people who have got significant domestic violence problems shouldn't be able to just buy a gun. Everyone agrees. The problem is, is that we've got a, a large class of vendors who escape those requirements, who don't have to comply with the, with the background check. Closing that loophole is, is a no-brainer. You know, it seems pretty straightforward. The population tends to agree with it, and yet even it's running into trouble. The other uh, data point I wanted to mention, and we'll talk about this with uh, uh, Mayor Sam Weaver of Boulder, is that the Boulder City Council had actually passed an assault weapons ban in 2018 in response to the Parkland shooting, and that that ban would have covered the Ruger AR-556 pistol that Alyssa purchased on March 16th, uh, and we believe he then used in the shooting, although there's still a dearth of information about exactly what did go down and and what what firearms he did use. But here's the kicker. Just this month, on March 12th, a Boulder County district judge overturned the Boulder City Ordinance banning assault rifles. Uh, now, we don't know where Alyssa bought that firearm that would have been covered uh, by the ordinance, so we don't know whether the court ruling actually allowed him to do something that he otherwise uh, couldn't have done. He could have purchased it somewhere else outside of Boulder. Uh, but we talk about the politics of it. There's also the judicial uh, hurdles that can exist both on the state and federal level. Yeah. I mean, are you aware, Victoria, of, uh, you know, all these other countries that have passed very restrictive uh, gun laws and as a result, you know, these kinds of mass killings have gone down. But I'm not aware of other countries where, uh, you know, from not just from state to state, but from municipality to municipality, there are different laws governing the ability to obtain these kinds of weapons. And it does argue for a federal national law. But of course, uh, that's not doesn't seem to be um, something that's likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And in fact, it, what happened in Colorado is uh, the Colorado state legislature had passed a law barring individual cities from passing their own individual laws. And it was that law that basically undid the Boulder regulation. And it undid it as a result of a lawsuit, which, if memory serves, was brought by the National Rifle Association. So don't let anyone tell you that the NRA is completely on its knees. They managed to strike down this very law, you know, 10 days ago. It's still alive and kicking, I yeah. guess. Yeah. So the political question here, uh, this is an issue that Joe Biden has been passionate about for most of his career in, in politics. When Newtown happened um, and uh, President Obama said, OK, I'm finally going to spend real political capital to try to get gun legislation passed. He tapped uh, his vice president, Joe Biden, to actually lead that effort because he had the history, he had the relationships on Capitol Hill, and it didn't go anywhere. And with all of the things that Joe Biden is trying to get done 
um, all of which are going to be extremely difficult. Is he going to lean into this issue? Well, you're right. You're right about his long history of concern about the matter. You're also right about the fact that there is an extraordinary groundswell of kind of human of human cry for this legislation to pass. After Newtown, the legislation failed by one vote, right? It was that close to being able to overcome the filibuster. Two of the people who pushed for new, the Newtown regulation are still in the Senate, and that is uh, Senator Toomey and Senator Manchin, the kind of unlikely duo. So as you know, kind of pessimistic as I was a little bit earlier, I don't want to be completely pessimistic because there still is the potential. Uh, it is such an overwhelmingly popular measure that there's there's possibly some hope. Well, um, we will talk to uh, two guests who can definitely illuminate uh, aspects of this, uh, the mayor of Boulder, Sam Weaver. And then we've got Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, one of the more outspoken moderates in the House Democratic Caucus, um, who also was holding a really interesting hearing today, Wednesday, on uh, whether we need a domestic terrorism law or how to combat the rise in uh, domestic terrorism, uh, something that's inextricably interwoven with the gun debate. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Let's get to it. We now have with us the mayor of Boulder, Colorado, Sam Weaver. Uh, Mayor, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having us. And our sincere condolences about uh, what your community is going through uh, after this awful, awful event on Monday. I want to start out by asking, I understand you got a call from the president of the United States today. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it was this morning. um, And the the president reached out to offer his condolences, obviously. um, And he also offered whatever support the federal government could um, arrange for us to access. And I told him that for where we are right now, um, getting through our shock process, starting grieving and beginning the healing process, that we didn't need a lot from the federal government. But as we looked to the future and trying to prevent this from occurring anywhere else, that we obviously supported everything he said at his press conference yesterday. And that our biggest ask as a community is better regulations around <clears throat> assault weapons and better background checks, um, closing loopholes, all things that we know that he supports. But um also just offered to lend my voice and voices from our community if there's any way we can help advance that through Congress. So it was about a seven or eight minute phone call. And I would say two, three minutes was around what happens to communities when these events happen. And the rest was about how we can stop it from happening again. Mr. Mayor, did he give you um, any kind of assessment um, as to uh, how challenging it will be going forward in our current political climate to actually make the kinds of uh, changes uh, that you just alluded to. 
He did. He said it would be very difficult, but he said that's no reason not to try, right? And the fact that it's difficult with this particular body <clears throat> at this particular time doesn't mean that we shouldn't be speaking about the need for this. So he also spoke, you know, to the fact that in 1994, um, the federal government banned assault weapons and he regretted that he needed to, you know, the group who passed it needed to put in a 10-year sunset in that measure. And he further regretted that at the 10 year anniversary in 2004, um, the ban expired. So that was all by way of example on his part of saying we can make things happen. It has happened in the past. So we know it's possible. Um, It's very difficult right now. So three years ago, Boulder tried to ban assault weapons, but that uh, that ban didn't hold up. Can you tell us why and uh, and whether or not you think that there's any chance of reinstating it, at least in Colorado? So thank you for the question. Um, I was on council then and we did pass an assault weapons ban successfully. It went into effect and was part of our ordinances. It was overturned 10 days ago by the uh, district court in the state of Colorado. And the reason it was overturned is because the state of Colorado adopted a preemption, which means they forbade cities and counties from uh, making laws around guns. Um, There are preemptions around plastics in Colorado and pesticides. These are things the state says you cannot regulate locally. So we knew that that was the case. However, we're what's called a home rule city in Colorado, which means that we've adopted our own charter and we have more rights than statutory cities who do not have their own charter approved by their um, people. So we are going to probably appeal this. My position is we should appeal the decision to the Colorado Supreme Court and make all the arguments that we want to make. And one of the arguments that I think is interesting is Denver, city and county of Denver, has an assault weapons ban. In fact, they passed that in the 2004 timeframe. And in reaction to that, the Colorado State Legislature banned cities from being able to make those laws, but they couldn't retroactively stop Denver from doing it because Denver had already done it. So Denver has this special place in in Colorado that's allowed to make its own rules, at least those rules that were in place. And my argument is, why can't we do it? I mean, we have the same footing as Denver does in every way. We're home rule just like Denver is. So we may or may not win that. So that's one pathway we will pursue. Another pathway, and this has just come up, a a constituent wrote this to us today, and I thought it was very interesting. We in Colorado can refer laws to um, by referendum at the city level. And so what happens if um, the people vote in an assault weapons ban or any other red flag law or whatever it is, and we adopt it because the people voted it in, that would be an entirely different legal challenge. And so if we are reversed, or maybe even if we just want to go forward with it, council could refer a measure that the people vote on or the people could petition it on. But there are pathways for us to get back to where we were. But, you know, my point to the state legislators is we need statewide action on this. You know, having rules within our borders means that somebody can go buy a weapon in a neighboring city and bring it in. So, yeah, Mr. Mayor, I, I do find it astonishing that just two weeks ago, your uh, ordinance was overturned by a uh, uh, by a state judge. Uh, is it your understanding that the Ruger AR-556 pistol 
that the suspect, Alyssa, purchased on March 16th, which was just four days after that judicial ruling, would have been covered by the Boulder uh, ordinance? It absolutely would have. I went and looked that pistol up today online just to see. It's not a pistol. I mean, it's got a stock. It, its ammunition feed is not in the grip of that weapon. It's in front of it. it. You go look it up. It's in every sense an assault rifle. It is classified as a pistol because it has a short barrel, and that is it. Um, it has the same recoil properties. It has the same large magazine capacity. It's an assault weapon. And yeah, it is very sad that it happened um, in the gap. You know, the killings happened after the ban was overturned. But it's very likely that that weapon was not purchased in Boulder. I believe that those weapons can't be sold in Boulder, at least until that ordinance was overturned. So, you know, because we banned them, we certainly banned the sale of them. So the the one gun shop and the second private gun store in Boulder, I don't believe carried weapons like that. The um, the other uh, part of uh, that leaps out when when examines this case is Alyssa, the suspect, had been convicted of assault. It was misdemeanor, but he pummeled another uh, kid in school uh, and pretty badly. If he went through a background check, and we don't know because we don't know where he got the gun, whether it was at a gun store that would have required a background check or a private sale that would not, um, it does raise the question of whether the kind of conviction, misdemeanor conviction, should be a red flag that would prevent somebody from buying a gun. What's your thoughts on that? My thought is that is a great point. And I think it illustrates very clearly why we need to go back and review all of these things at the state level, because it could be that you have to have a felony conviction in order not to be able to purchase a weapon like this. And the fact that he had a misdemeanor crime of violence is something that I think should, you know, at least for a period of time after that conviction, stop him from being able to buy any kind of weapon. I don't want him to carry a handgun any more than I want that person to carry an assault weapon. And so, uh, you know, I couldn't agree more that that's an interesting area to talk about. So you talk about what kinds of convictions should prevent somebody from being able to purchase a weapon. And you also talk about how do we link our mental health system to our um, background check system. So I think there's also a bunch of weaknesses there. As you know, um, his brother reported that he was exhibiting not only hostile tendencies, but potentially delusional tendencies. And to me, we'd like to have known both of those things, you know, not only his mental health, but his assault conviction in the past. So those will be items that we discuss with our state legislators. Um, you may have heard that Senator Steve Fenberg, he's the uh, Colorado state senator from our district, had already pulled a bill title um, when, when our assault weapon ban was overturned by the judge, Steve had pulled a title for a bill to get rid of the state prohibition. And he was intending to kind of talk about it and socialize it. And then these the events of Monday occurred. And now he's going forward with that, attempting to remove the state block on cities making their own laws. 
The uh, now your uh, community uh, is obviously grieving. What can you tell us about? I don't know if you knew any of the uh, of the victims uh, here or had been to that uh, supermarket where this took place. Um, but give us a, a sense of um, what it's been like uh, in Boulder in the last couple of days. Um, it's a shock. Uh, and, and I can say, you know, Boulder is a very resilient community where um, <clears throat> we have the highest flood risk in the state of Colorado. So we've been through floods. We've been through fires. Um, this event hits home in a way that none of those do because it's preventable and human caused. And it's it's shocking and devastating. You know, you ask if I've been to that store. Boulder's a small town in a way, small city, 110,000 people. We have two King Supers. We have two Safeways. And we have some smaller markets around. But everyone in Boulder almost has been to both of the Safeways or I guess all three of the Safeways and both of the King Supers in town. So, yes, I know that store very well. As far as the people who were killed who I might have known, one of the people killed um, was on one of our city boards. So we appoint boards and commissions. And Kevin Mahoney was on our beverage licensing authority, which is essentially our liquor board um, that, that approves liquor licenses. And so I helped appoint him. Um, I was not a friend of his, not close to him, but there's that connection um, that all of us in the city have to him because he served with us. And then, of course, there's Officer Tally, who is one of our policemen. Uh, I'm certain that we have met in the past, but I didn't know him well either. So I think everyone's trying to get to the point we're grieving. You know, I, I think that there are many of us who have just been dealing with what's going on. We'll have our first vigil tonight. So there's going to be a candlelight vigil in front of the courthouse down on the Pearl Street Mall. And we are having a special council meeting. Our next regular council meeting was April 6th. And we want to hear from our community and, and process with them. So, you know, we're starting down the grieving process here, but um, I, I don't know what this is going to look like. I haven't been through it before. Neither is our community. Mayor, your your state has been through so much grieving um, in the wake of these terrible incidents of gun violence, whether it's Columbine or Aurora or the Planned Parenthood uh, clinic in Colorado Springs and, and now now Boulder. And yet you're not able to keep laws on on your books that that restrict uh, these these terrible weapons of, of mass destruction. You know, in, in this moment, um, when people are, I think, are looking for some some hope, some sense uh, that the senselessness can end. Uh, what hope do you give to people around the country uh, that anything can be done about uh, about these guns and about uh, the um, intransigence in terms of changing the laws? Well, <clears throat> I'll speak first to Colorado. Um, for a long time, we've had a split legislature, meaning that one house was controlled by Democrats and one by Republicans. And so that obviously makes things difficult. And now we have both houses controlled by Democrats and Democratic governor. So one bit of hope at the state level is that, you know, in the face of the most recent tragedy, and you're right, the Colorado unfortunately has a history of these, maybe we can get something done, if at the very least to allow cities to pass their own laws. So that's one thing. At the state level, we have an opening. I'll say another thing that gives me hope 
is the COVID experience has caused everyone to kind of rethink things. You know, the future of work is being rethought. The future of universities is being rethought. These things will not change overnight, but the, you know, COVID has accelerated some changes that were probably going to be pretty slow. This is a case where, as our Senator Steve Fenberg said, does a new, you know, return to normal mean that we return to gun violence? Is that part of what we want, you know, after we emerge from this pandemic, which is a once a century kind of event? And so another point of hope for me is that the rethinking that's going on broadly about how our society is constructed will apply to guns, gun violence, mental health as well. At the federal level, you know, I can't say I'm as hopeful. Obviously, it, it was very heartwarming to get a call from a president who cared for the people that he governs and who was empathetic to the pain that was being felt locally. So that gives me hope as well. We have somebody in leadership who would like to see something be different. That's always helpful. Um, at the federal level, I'm a lot less hopeful in the next two to four years. A lot of uh, communities that have gone through this, community leaders, uh, uh, elected officials have tried to become a part of this debate. Do you see yourself speaking out, coming to Washington, appealing to lawmakers, uh, making your voice heard uh, about the urgency of doing something about this? Absolutely. You know, obviously it had been something I cared about in 2018. Um, I worked hard to make sure that we did a good job on that. Um, the, the initial call to do something after the shootings in Florida came from council member Jill Grano. And once she kicked us off and behind the scenes, we had talked about this over the years from time to time, but Jill publicly said, we, we need to do this. And so we started down the path. So I got pretty invested in 2018. It was a the scariest time serving on city council that I've had was going through those hearings. But I do see, you know, becoming part of a national conversation, not just me, the people of Boulder. We've obviously cared before we passed this rule and had broad support. But I think we know we need to do more. We now know that we've been marked as one of the communities that's been impacted. And so I do see, I do see both me personally and our entire kind of population getting even more active about this. Is there a, as you do that, is there, is there anything that you would say or that you think you could say to the people who are so opposed to any regulation of guns, any bans of assault weapons or universal background check? What do you think you could say that would persuade them to change their mind? I don't know. Because um, I don't really understand the points they're making. I own weapons. I own a pistol. I own a shotgun. I own a rifle. Um, I grew up shooting weapons. So I'm extremely familiar with guns and they, they don't scare me and I see them as tools. Assault weapons are different. They're designed to blow big holes in human beings. And that's exactly what they do. And, and so if I'm speaking to somebody who's an advocate, I would first ask, why is it important? to have these kinds of weapons. And if I hear something about tyranny and standing against tyranny, you know, obviously that doesn't make much sense. Do we give people grenade launchers? Do we give them tanks? You know, where does that line get drawn? I think the line gets drawn elsewhere. 
But that's what I'd say. I'd say, is it really worth the killing of all of these innocent people to have these weapons in the hands of a million people in our country? So there's about a million people in the United States who own assault weapons, right? Many of them own multiple. So there's tens of millions of assault weapons available, but they're only owned by a handful of millions of people. And so I would also say, why is it that the rights of those people, at least their perceived rights, to own those types of weapons trump the other hundreds of millions of people who disagree with that? And so, you know, I would I would ask that question because I, you know, obviously they've heard all my arguments before. Obviously, they have counter arguments to all of them. I just find that their counter arguments become very technical and mechanistic and leave out the human element. Like, is it worth it? And I point to Australia. You know, Australia did a big buyback. They banned assault weapons after a terrible killing in the 90s. And they've not had another set of killings like that since then. So I think we know the laboratories of the world have told us that there are ways to go from where we are now into a place where there's less gun violence. And my question to people who disagree is, why wouldn't you want a future in which we have fewer innocent people killed? Well, Mr. Mayor, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I know it's been a wrenching experience for you, but um, clearly you have a message that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you all. All right. We now have with us Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, Democrat of Michigan, chair of the Intelligence and Counterterrorism Subcommittee of the House Homeland Security Committee. Congresswoman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk to you about the super interesting hearing you chaired today about a domestic terrorism law. But I want to just start out with the horrific events in Boulder uh, the other day and the coming debate about doing something in terms of gun violence. Um, You have said you're a supporter of the Second Amendment. You grew up in a uh, gun-owning family and uh, carried a weapon when you served in Iraq as an intelligence officer for the CIA, but you do support measures that would tighten up the gun laws. As you look at the events over the last week, both Atlanta and in Boulder, are there new proposals that you see that could address some of the particulars of these massacres and, you know, more broadly, do you see an opening for, uh, you know, revisiting and getting passage of uh, gun control measures this Congress? Well, um, I will acknowledge that I don't know the particulars of how the suspect in Boulder actually acquired all of his weapons um, and whether, you know, he got them without the proper checks and, and, and whatnot. But I mean, yes, I do think we're here at another opportunity to actually pass something because we just passed two pieces of just really basic gun legislation through the House in the past 10 days. Um, we passed them before, but we passed them again. It's literally universal background checks and then closing what's called the South Carolina loophole, where if it takes a little bit longer for the feds to do your background check, that doesn't mean you get to buy the gun. It means you have to wait, right? You have to wait. And um, what I understand is that we're actually going to try and put that up in the Senate. And I, I 
I strongly support it, frankly, not even knowing whether we could get 60 votes to pass it because we need to have an up or down vote. I want people on the record on their votes on basic background checks. Um, I don't like the McConnell style of just let's not have a vote if it's not going to pass. Let these people vote on this. It's so far past time. And I, I think we're hearing rumblings that that is going to happen because of what's just gone on in the past couple of weeks. Well, let me just one, one quick follow up on this. The uh, suspect in the Boulder shooting uh, bought his gun, a, a uh, assault style pistol on March 16th. He did have a conviction, a misdemeanor conviction for assault. And I gather that just does not trigger a, a flag through the through the FBI background check and would not have and did not prevent him from purchasing this gun because the standard is a felony. Does that raise a question as to whether we need to tighten up the uh, background check review? I mean, I think it, it, we've had this situation also with domestic violence and people who are being stalked by their partner or by their former husband. They haven't been convicted of anything, but they are in the in the process of, of threatening someone's life. I, I certainly think it's an interesting thing to talk about, but I will be honest with you. Like, I'm a pragmatist, right? And we have not been able to get even the most basic gun legislation through. I mean, anything. Even just making it so that if you go to a gun show or if you buy a gun off the internet, you have to go through a background check. So I, I certainly am willing to look at expanding the list. But uh, at this point, we we haven't even uh, like shored up our current system with felonies. So as a pragmatist, I'd like to get that on the books. I just have one one more follow up question on this, and then we'll move to uh, uh, domestic terrorism. Um, you come from a state where a lot of people own guns and are enthusiastic gun owners for recreational sports reasons, self-protection reasons. The polls suggest that nationally, the vast majority of Americans are in favor of these restrictions, gun measures. Um, and yet uh, it's been more than a decade since uh, Congress has been able to pass any meaningful uh, gun control legislation. Why is that? Is it just politics and the gun lobby? Is that it? Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, I, I know we all like to use polls, but polls are they give you a sense maybe of the entire country, but not district by district. And certainly I grew up in a gun owning family. Um, we still allow hunting on our property. Um, it, it's just here in Michigan, the vast majority of people are responsible gun owners. And it's part of our, frankly, our tradition here going out and hunting with your family. Um, uh, I, I, but I think that. Um, that it's literally just pure politics. It's become one of those politicized issues that's like dog whistle words, you know, common sense gun legislation equals someone's trying to steal my guns. And of course, the average person in my district just goes down the street. They want to buy a gun at, you know, the local Dunham's, one of our, our big sports stores. They have to go through a background check, but they've been told that any new legislation means their guns, you know, people are coming for their guns. And it's, it's not accurate. Um, but it's become one of these politicized topics that people kind of can't talk about rationally. Um, frankly, immigration, abortion, it's in the pantheon of our most politicized topics. So, yes, it is politics. 
Um, let's move to your hearing today on uh, domestic terrorism. Uh, you made the point that this is the new national security threat to our country. We have been so focused on overseas terrorism uh, that we have uh, not paid attention to what's going on inside our own country. But crafting a domestic terrorism law is not easy for all sorts of reasons, uh, especially if you're, we're going to separate it out from the foreign nexus that's been the basis for all the terrorism laws we've had to date. How do you craft a law uh, that targets domestic terrorism? Who is going to decide what constitutes a domestic terrorism group? What are the standards for doing that? Um, all these are thorny questions. Give us your uh, your assessment right now. Well, I mean, I think the first principal issue is whether we actually need a federal domestic terrorism law. And that is, uh, there is no uh, short, you know, there is a ton of debate about that, that very basic idea. And that's why we, part of the reason we had the hearing today was to hear from the state's attorney general who could talk about how they have to deal with this problem because the feds, frankly, don't have sometimes as strong of laws on the books as our states. Certainly that's the case for the state of Michigan, where we have an anti-terrorism law, an anti-militia series of laws. I mean, we have real teeth here. And I will tell you, just as soon as I took over this committee, I started hearing from civil rights, civil liberties groups across the political spectrum, left, right, center, who were very, very concerned that either a new federal law was going to be targeting conservatives and people who were simply exercising their freedom of speech to be angry with their government, to be frustrated with, with others, or that an anti-terror a domestic terrorism law was simply going to eventually be turned on black and brown people. Um, and, you know, bringing up all kinds of horrible stories from the 60s and 70s when uh, civil rights leaders were, were, you know, they had their phones tapped and they were followed. So there is no agreement um, right now that we need such a law. Do you think we need one? I, you know, honestly, I, I really have an open mind about it. Um, I heard today from my own attorney general who says, yes, she thinks that we need a federal um, a federal anti-terrorism law. She wants us to almost cut and paste to what we have in Michigan and apply it to the rest of the country. Um, but I, I certainly think that there's a ton of law on the books that frankly isn't being used. I was shocked. I mean, even in my own state, we have a real militia problem here. I mean, the Proud Boys, you can go into my own town and see people wearing Proud Boys jackets and Proud Boys bracelets. And, you know, it's we've seen a precipitous rise in some of these militia groups, but we haven't actually prosecuted a case against a militia member or militia organization in, I think, decades. So part of this is, yes, we need to explore potentially new law, but also I'm convinced that under this Department of Justice, this FBI, with the right guidance, support, financial resources, we could actually increase those prosecutions without potentially having new law. So there also is a, a resource and intelligence problem regarding this Big issue. Time. And 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 your attorney general in her testimony today talked about how hard it was for her to get kind of just on the ground intel about what's going on and how she's actually had to sign a contract with a, a college and a bunch of undergraduates to help provide that information. That doesn't seem like kind of state of the art, a state of the art approach. So it, do we need a law or do we just need resources and prioritization? I think and that's, I think, a, a, um, a really strong inclination for a lot of folks on our committee is, you know, a lot of us 
I'm a 9-11 baby, right? I'm one of those people who I was in New York City when we were attacked. I changed what I was going to do, and I decided to go into national security. And think about intelligence collection on foreign terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda before 9-11. It was not hip to be an intelligence analyst that looked at these foreign terrorist organizations. And we had to build up our resources that looked at these organizations that understood the leaders, the money, the training, those kinds of things. And I think that's what we need to do is make sure we're appropriately resourced. It gets really hinky and really sensitive really quickly, though, because this isn't Al-Qaeda hanging out with the Taliban in Afghanistan. This is, you know, Uncle Bob hanging out um, with some of his friends down the street 15 minutes from here. So you can understand the reluctance of many, many folks the minute we start talking about intelligence collection and domestic terrorism. But there are organizations designed for this, the FBI, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and you're right, they just do not have the the analysts, the money, the resources, or the intel sharing, frankly, to really do this right. So do we even know how big a problem this is? Well, uh, not totally. I mean, the, the truth is we don't collect data the same way. And this is why this assessment, I think maybe um, someone mentioned it, this new DNI assessment that just came out last week, the unclassified report um, is like three pages of sort of the state of play on domestic terrorist groups, domestic violent extremists, talked about the fact that we don't have a good handle on how many people, how many groups, who are they, what are they doing? And we need to improve upon that. And I think Certainly, this administration feels the heat to do that and to increase our resources on those those groups. You know, you raised the question about about the past on this. Actually, in 2010, the Justice Department did charge nine members of a Michigan militia with seditions, conspiracy, and they were all acquitted two years later. Federal mm-hmm. judge threw the charges out. So this can get pretty difficult when you're talking about domestic groups. You mentioned the Proud Boys being quite prevalent in your uh, community, uh, and they certainly were quite prevalent on Capitol Hill on January 6th. But do they constitute a domestic terrorism group in your mind? In my mind, we have to have an actual rigorous process that with criteria, it's not up to me whether they're a domestic terrorist organization. There has to be a very clear stated criteria for how we assess any group of any kind. And that's groups on the right, groups on the left, groups from everybody. Certainly, it got my attention when the Canadian government designated the Proud Boys. Um, Most listeners probably don't know, for us Michiganders, except for COVID time, we're over in the Canadian side all the time. People have family and property. I go and see concerts over there. What does it mean now if someone's a member of the Proud Boys post online, you know, flashing uh, the their, their Proud Boys paraphernalia, and then they are going to go for the night to go see a Santana concert, you know, in Canada? I actually don't know and asked our attorney general, like, have you even started to discuss this with the Canadians? But we have to have a very rigorous set of criteria. We have to make sure that it makes sense. And to me, the threshold issue always is, are they inciting or using violence for political ends? If they're just angry, frankly, if they're white supremacists, but they're not advocating and using violence, then the First Amendment gives them the right to be however nasty they want to be. Um, So that to me is the threshold. And it's not up to me. It's a criteria based on rigorous, rigorous review. Uh, Congresswoman, you mentioned before uh, that uh, 
at the federal level, we have all of these different departments and institutions that uh, collect intelligence um, for uh, you know domestic terrorism. Um, the FBI, uh, Department of Homeland Security. You mentioned the DNI, which has you know done this uh, review on the threat of domestic violent extremism. But I wonder if that's part of the problem. Should there not be uh, one organization that is responsible for? collecting intelligence. And most countries, you know, as a uh, as a former uh, CIA person yourself, most countries have a dedicated domestic intelligence agency. Um, they don't arrest people, but they are responsible for collecting intelligence and then handing it off uh, to other agencies. Do we need something like that in this country? I understand the sensitivities there, but can the FBI be in the lead when they have all of these other priorities and they're mostly concerned with uh, arresting people? Yeah, so this is this is the thing. I'm not sure I would say there needs to be only one department or agency that collects information, but there needs to be one entity that is responsible, right? Responsible for intel sharing, responsible for getting it from the federal level down to state and locals, which is always, always a problem. Responsible for amalgamating all the information that we have coming in and racking and stacking. I mean, this is what the DNI does quite well for foreign intelligence. But to be honest, like I said, everyone gets very, very careful, rightfully so, when it comes to domestic um, intelligence. And something that I'm thinking about is, you know, does the DNI need to have a specially designated person that looks at domestic issues, domestic terrorism, like some human who could be called up in front of Congress and has to answer for, you know, data collection and intel sharing? It's a really interesting point, because I remember when when uh, Avril Haines was uh uh, had her uh, confirmation hearing, and and she was asked to, to commit to actually doing this uh, kind of review. She was a little nervous about it. She said, well, we'll be there to support the FBI. So you're saying you would be in favor of actually designating someone at the DNI who would be responsible for domestic intelligence. I would say I'm very interested in the idea. And in my experience working in big bureaucratic systems, if no one's responsible you just lose a lot in translation and you got to have someone who feels like it's their mandate to really get the ship together. Congresswoman, you were a a former CIA analyst. Um, uh, The CIA had very strict rules put on it about collecting domestic intelligence after all the revelations of the church committee and spying by the CIA on American citizens. Um, And, you know, generally the division of labor is our intelligence agencies are for intelligence overseas. They're supposed to keep hands off when it comes to U.S. citizens. It sounds like you are open to relaxing those red lines between intelligence and domestic. No, as a CIA officer, this is drilled into you. When you go through your career analytic course, right, your your first four months of training, um, it is just drilled into you. We do not collect on American citizens. We do not use the resources of the CIA to collect on American citizens. We don't put American citizens' names, even if they're ancillary to what we're collecting. I mean, we are trained intensely about this. And I don't think it's right to have the CIA change its focus. There are intelligence organizations already stood up that do this for a living. We oversee them in the the Committee on Homeland Security, at the Department of Homeland Security, at the FBI. Um, These are organizations that have the mandate. They also have the legal framework to do this in a way that is more responsible. So, no, uh, I do not support organizations. DNI, DNI oversees our foreign intelligence 
agencies. DNI should. I was employee number five at the DNI's office, right? I work was the special assistant to the first DNI and helped start the organization. It should be the umbrella organization that facilitates the conversation between all of our intelligence agencies, all of them. And while I, the vast majority of our intelligence resources are focused abroad appropriately, um, I think it is time to accept that we need to look at our architecture for domestic threats. So in the last year in Michigan, there have been um, armed men who kind of invaded your capital, uh, some people who uh, plotted to kidnap and kill your governor. Your own staffer was the subject of a, a kind of a vicious phone call and series of threats ultimately resulting in someone being arrested just last month regarding it. Does it ever feel like you're back on the front lines of terrorism? Um, you know, I will say certainly the threats to elected officials have gone precipitously up. We're all feeling that. And um, you got a, one, didn't you? And Yeah. In I mean, the call to my to my staffer was a call meant for me. Right. Um, that she just happened. The, the poor the poor staffer happened to, to um, be on the receiving end of. And that man was caught brandishing an AR-15 a week later. The day that I really felt like my worlds were colliding, especially having done three tours in Iraq alongside the military, was January 6th. And, um, you know, being just below the Capitol, a, a stair flight below the Capitol and starting to go up to the House floor and like your body freezing when you hear the screaming and the yelling and the breaking glass and what my brain thought was a flashbang. So a crowd control measure which ended up being the shot that killed the Air Force veteran who was just above us one floor. Um, my brain clicked into the training I did before I went to Baghdad, which is get off the X, get off the X, get off the target, get off the bullseye and hightail it out of there. Um, and I never in my life thought that I would be using that kind of training in the U.S. Capitol. It was a sad, disturbing, disturbing moment and disturbing day. Congresswoman, uh, you are one of the more outspoken centrists in your caucus, pragmatists. I don't know which term you prefer, uh, but there's a couple of issues that are roiling your caucus right now. And I just want to get your quick reaction. One, obviously, is what's going on at the border and whether the Biden administration has been too lenient in letting all these um, migrants, particularly the young ones, into the country. And uh, the other is is uh, the House Administration Committee reviewing the results of the certified election of a Republican in the second district of Iowa. Your quick reaction on both of those fronts, uh, where do you stand? Yeah, we had Secretary Mayorkas in front of us, um, in front of the Homeland Security Committee last week. And, and I just, there is very few issues that are as politicized as immigration. And you just have to call a spade a spade. We have a really large number of kids coming over the border, and we are going to have very large numbers of people coming over this spring, particularly as COVID restrictions come down in their home countries and poverty rates have gone up. It's just a fact. Um, and so for me, we have to manage that. We have to do it in a humane way. We have to say, hey, you can actually secure your border and treat people humanely consistent with our values. But you got to be honest that we need not just a pathway to citizenship for people, right? We need real reform. We need people to not have to illegally cross our border to come and try and work here. We need them to be able to work legally. And we need our employers to be able to hire legal immigrant labor. So, you know, to me, I'm, I'm not going to support 
support um, legislation, even from my own party, that doesn't get to the root of the problems, which is people don't have legal pathways to come here. Um, it's just not easy. It's not possible. And it's um, until we get to that, as I told Secretary Mayorkas, I'm not going to support a proposal that comes across my desk in the form of legislation um, on looking at Iowa. The Iowa. Thank you. The, this election, you know, nothing could be more heartbreaking than losing an election by seven votes. But if the election is certified and as heartbreaking as it is, I'm sorry, I cannot support overturning uh, an election especially given everything that's gone on and what we've been hearing from the Republican side of the aisle. I mean, that's their whole shtick. They they attempted to delegitimize the results of the election and not certify those elections. Using, in, in the case of the, the protesters, they tried to use violence to stop us from certifying an election. I can't turn around and vote to decertify something that's been, um, you know, stamped and approved in Iowa. And I, I can't, I, as Th- much does, as I Doesn't feel- that make it all but impossible if even a few pragmatic Democrats like you are against it and all Republicans obviously will oppose overturning the results of the election? This is a fool's errand. I, I haven't taken like the whip count, as we call it, right? I haven't checked where everybody else is. I can just tell you where I am. And we have a slim majority. That's a fact. Um, and uh, I, I think it, I I can only tell you what I'm doing. I do not know what my peers are going to do. Okay. Well, Congresswoman, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, It's a fascinating discussion and issue on domestic terrorism, and we will want to stay in touch with you to um, see where you end up. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. you. That's great.